Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning in worship of you as the God who sits alone above all other beings, all your creation that you have made. You sit enthroned in majesty, in holiness, as we have sung. And yet you have deigned to be known by your creation, by mankind, in the created world and in your revelation through your word and the person and work of Jesus Christ. In this we rejoice, in this we have confidence, in this we hope. How we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have not been left without a guide in this world. We thank you that your word is good and profitable for doctrine, for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training or for instruction in righteousness, that we might be well equipped for every good work. And so we need you this hour. We need your instruction and we thank you that you have given us your instruction here this morning. As we look at the closing chapter here of 1 Thessalonians, this letter that we've been working through this summer. May you help us to see the instruction that you had for that church and by extension, the instruction that you have for us here at Gateway in 2018. Please help me to be clear. Please help me to speak what is of you. And please help each of us as we listen to hold fast to that which is good and to rejoice when it is all said and done that we have heard from you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Now on most Sundays, if you were to walk into this building at uh, 10 minutes to noon, you will probably see two words displayed on the screen behind me. Anyone wanna guess what those two words are if you've been coming for a while? Concluding thoughts, that's right, I heard that. And when those words appear, it signals that the sermon will soon be drawing to a close. But before it does, there are a number of important takeaways or gospel imperatives, as we sometimes call them, that the preacher is seeking to press home in light of all the sermon content that has preceded those final minutes. And for the listener who has heard the sermon from the beginning, these concluding thoughts help to answer the question, what then shall I do? Or collectively, what then shall we do? In light of what we have seen and heard from scripture. For the listener who has just walked in at 11.50 a.m., and I know none of you would do that, these concluding thoughts may stand on their own and may be helpful, but they'll be even more helpful if that person were to go find the recording of the sermon later in the week and listen to the preceding 45 minutes or so. This then is where we find ourselves in this letter this morning as it relates to 1 Thessalonians as we've been studying through it this summer, the concluding thoughts section, which in my Bible is entitled Final Instructions. It actually says Final Instructions and Benediction, but you'll have to come back next Sunday for the benediction part. So join me as we look at our proposition here this morning. The actions and attitudes, or if you prefer the letter C, the conduct and character of God's people are to accord with their profession of faith, be marked by love, and pursued in light of the hope of Christ's return. The actions and attitudes, or the conduct and character of God's people, are to accord with their profession of faith, be marked by love, and pursued in light of the hope of Christ's return. For the benefit of the visitor in our midst, or in case you've traveled during the summer, missed some of the, the, the ser sermons in this series, let us remind ourselves of who the various parties in verse 12 are when it says, we ask you brothers, the we is Paul, Silvanus, 
or Silas, and Timothy. And we know that from verse 1 of chapter 1. And the brothers, the word brothers refers to the Thessalonian believers. And it's a term of endearment that describes the nature of the relationship between this church and these three men. The term brothers appears as early as verse 4, there in chapter 1. We know brothers. It's used repeatedly. Chapter 2, verse 1, you yourselves know brothers. Chapter 2, verse 9, you remember brothers. Chapter 2, verse 14, you brothers became imitators. Chapter 2, verse 17, we were torn away from you brothers. 3, 7, for this reason brothers. 4, 1, finally then brothers. 4, 10, we urge you brothers. 4, 13, we do not want you to be uninformed brothers. 5, 1, concerning the times and the seasons brothers. 5, 4, you are not in darkness brothers. And twice again in our text this morning, we have brothers in verse 12 and brothers in verse 14. What then is the basis of this brotherhood? Chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, it says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And so what we see here is the basis of this brotherhood is the fatherhood of God. If you encounter two boys who have the same father, you call them brothers, born into the same family. In this particular case, how does this brotherhood come about? How does this birth into the same family take place? In John's Gospel, chapter 1, he speaks of the word who became flesh and made his dwelling among mankind. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the sons or children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's how the Bible describes the new birth and becoming a son or a child of God. It is on the basis of believing in his name that one is given, it's not earned but given, the right to be referred to as a son of God and thus a brother to all fellow believers. Chapter 1 verse 4 says, We know, brothers, loved by God that he has chosen you. Up there on the screen. Salvation is of God. It is the product of his love to sinful men like you and I. Romans 5.8 says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And verse 9 says that we are justified, we are declared righteous by his blood and are saved by him from the wrath that is to come. And verse 10 in Romans 5 says, while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Friends, is this your story? Is this your song? That while you were yet a sinner, you were and have been so loved by God that you have been given the gift of faith to believe in the name of the son who died in your place. That you have been declared righteous by virtue of his blood and thus are saved by the son from the wrath of God. Reconciled, brought back into relationship with the God who created you and who your sin had separated you from and thus have received the right to become a son and a brother to all fellow sons. Have you been born into this family with God as your father? If like the Thessalonian believers, this is your story, praise God. And if this is not your story today, it can be. Because none of the imperatives that we are now about to look at matter unless you can be counted among the brethren. It is to such brothers that Paul is writing these final instructions. 
the same brothers whose lives are marked in chapter 1 as by having work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is who he now addresses in these final instructions. So let me read our text this morning from verse 12 through 22. The final instructions that we will be looking at this morning. You don't have to stand. Just listen as I read. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. This is the word of the Lord. And so our first point this morning, be at peace among yourselves, from verses 12 through 15. Be at peace among yourselves. We find this exact line at the end of verse 13. And the structure of our text suggests that this is the primary thought that ties together these four verses. We also know that peace is a common theme throughout Paul's writings to the various churches that he writes letters to. He often begins with it, as we saw even in verse one of this letter, grace to you and peace. And he often ends with peace as well as he draws his letters to a close. At the end of Romans, he says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. May the God of peace be with you all. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. At the end of 2 Corinthians, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. At the end of Philippians, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. At the end of Colossians, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. At the end of the second letter to this church, 2 Thessalonians, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. And now in our text this morning, what are some of the specific instructions that Paul gives that accord with peace? The first one we see up here is respect your elders. Respect your elders, and we'll see that in verses 12 and 13. Now, by this common phrase, I do not mean respect those who are older than you, even though that is a good thing to do. Rather, this is a call to respect your pastors, if you will, your leaders in the context of the local church. In Acts chapter 14, we find Paul and Barnabas at the end of their missionary journey, and if I can read that for us, in Acts chapter 14, verses 21 to 23. Acts 14, 21 to 23. It says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. These four verses, Acts 14, 21 to 23, summarize what Paul and Barnabas had been going about doing in their missionary journey. They had preached the gospel, they had made disciples, and they had appointed elders in every church. And this remains the mandate of any itinerant frontier mission effort today in which a Christian goes out and seeks 
to go into a new community where Christ has not been named, to preach the gospel, to seek to make disciples, and then to identify men who can be under shepherds over this new Christian community of believers. And so if you go from Acts 14 to Acts 16, we find Paul and Silas and Timothy, who we know from verse 1 of chapter 1 in our text, are the authors of the letter to the Thessalonians. And when they get to Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, they began to proclaim Christ. Now they were only there for a few weeks. We learned this as we were introducing this letter at the beginning of the summer. And they were torn away suddenly. 1 Thessalonians 2.17 tells us this. So it's not clear whether the brief time that they had, that Paul and Silas had with the Thessalonian believers was enough for them to see uh, conversions, disciples made, and elders appointed all within that short time frame. But our text today reveals that the appointing of elders happened at some point. Perhaps it happened in chapter 3 when Paul and Silvanus sent Timothy, right? It says there in verse 2, to establish and exhort them in their faith. Maybe appointing elders was part of that trip. We're not told. But whatever the timeline was, the instruction here to this church is to respect these men who are described in our text as being over them in the Lord. A lack of respect for elders in the church by their fellow members is a sure recipe for discord and lack of peace among the body of Christ. Friends, how does your heart respond when you hear this phrase over you in the context of the local church? Do you embrace this form of authority or do you bristle at the very mention of it? I want us to see here in our outline, first of all, that this authority is delegated authority. Delegated authority. So to help us here, the first thing I want us to point out is where this authority comes from. The pastors or elders in our verse here are described not merely as over you, but over you in the Lord. Over you in the Lord. It's the same phrase used in Ephesians 6.1 a verse which every parent here knows by heart. This past week while having a talk with my five-year-old son about obedience and always obeying, he asked me if he should obey me if I tell him to do something wrong. I told him that was a great question. And I had the opportunity of talking with him about the meaning of this phrase, in the Lord. Likewise here, elders are over you in the Lord. There's a safety here. Our allegiance as believers in Christ is to our Lord, Jesus Christ. And yet under that supreme authority, God has ordained delegated authority. Not just in the home as with parents and children, but also in the local church. In Hebrews 13, verse 17, the author writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Some more parallels to Ephesians 6.1. That's delegated authority. Your elders are called to keep watch over your souls as they will have to give an account to the one from whom their delegated authority came. The second thing I want us to note in our outline under respect your elders is that they are fellow sheep. Fellow sheep. And I want us to see that straight from our text here. Paul describes the leaders in the church as those who labor among you. This is in contrast to a hierarchical picture in which you have leaders up here and then you have laborers who do the bidding of the leaders down here. At the beginning of 1 Peter 5, we find Peter exhorting elders by saying, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So here we see that elders are to shepherd the flock, 
but that there's only one chief shepherd, and that is Jesus, the good shepherd of John chapter 10, verse 11, who lays down his life for the sheep. The elders are first and foremost sheep. In the context of the local church, they are first and foremost church members. They are over us in the Lord, and yet they labor among us. When my family and I moved here two years ago and were looking for a church, one of the things that we found while we were looking into Gateway Bible Church was our teaching pastor's blog. And one of the things that I, I appreciated right at the very top of the blog was a subtitle of the blog. Anyone know what it says? Seeking to be a faithful expositor who smells like sheep. And this told my wife and I something about the heart of Pastor Rod and his desire toward the body of believers here, not domineering over those in his charge, but that his labor among the sheep would be abundantly evident. And so we thank God for that. Now, I will say that when I came across the blog, Pastor Rod had just written a blog post, but that was two years ago this month, and there hasn't been another blog post since then. Um, maybe, maybe now that his doctoral dissertation and degree are behind him, we can prevail upon him to consider reviving the blog. Third point there, under respect your elders, is esteem them. And I want us to unpack uh, the meaning there of esteem. And I have here obedience, submission, imitation, and prayer. Uh, what then does respecting your leaders look like? In our text, we are to respect them when they admonish us. The word admonish means to advise or to urge earnestly. To advise or to urge earnestly. Warnings are only effective if responded to appropriately. And therefore Paul is calling the church at Thessalonica to heed the admonition or warnings. More bluntly they are to obey and submit, just as we saw from Hebrews 13:17. The Lord has blessed us with godly men as elders here at Gateway. Because of the humility and the grace with which they serve the body of Christ here, we may be lulled into forgetting that we are to willingly place ourselves under their authority. Their admonition may come to us either through their public or their private ministry to us. It's not restricted to just willingly receiving their preaching ministry on Sundays. It involves seeking out and receiving their counsel about various life situations and yes, obeying the directions that they give us as informed by the instruction of scripture and the discernment that they exercise over various situations. The end of that verse, Hebrews 13, 17, that we referenced encourages us that it is advantageous for us to place ourselves under this God-given authority willingly, not begrudgingly. It's part and parcel about what it means to become a member of this church. And it underscores the importance of church membership about which much more can be said, but that we'll have to wait for another day. What else does respecting our leaders look like? Uh, staying here in Hebrews 10 verses earlier, 13.7, the author writes, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The church in Thessalonica was commended for exactly this, if you remember. In chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 to 7. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 and 7. Remember, Paul wrote, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. The Thessalonian believers became imitators of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, and of the Lord. To a different church, the church of Corinth, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Our elders seek by God's grace to be such men, in their homes, by the way they lead their families, and as they bring their word to, the word of God to us, both through their public and private ministry to us. Let's now look at verse 13 in our text, 1 Thessalonians 5, 13. Do you esteem your pastors, your elders, very highly in love because of their work? 
If you do, one of the ways this esteem will show up is in your prayers for them. Hebrews 13, 18 says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. Gateway Bible Church, on several occasions I have heard Pastor Rod and Pastor J.D. testify that they have been the recipient of, the recipients of this kind of esteem. May this church grow in doing so more and more. Pray for your elders. Do not just esteem them quietly in your mind, but look for opportunities to communicate this esteem in word and deed for their encouragement. I grew up in a pastor's home. In fact, my parents are here with us today, and please be in prayer for them as they travel back to their places of ministry in Kenya this coming week. Growing up in a pastor's home, I can tell you how valuable the encouragement of God's people is to a pastor. I know that my dad would not still be pastoring the church he's been pastoring for the last 40 years if it were not for both the prayers of God's people privately as well as the encouragement of God's people expressed in word and deed. A second point in our outline is addressing the church to care for one another in verses 14 through 15. Care for one another, 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 and 15. So Paul moves from the instruction on how the church is to relate to its leaders, and now he moves to urging them on how to relate to one another in particular ways. There are many threats to peace and harmony and unity in the church, and three of them are in focus here, each with its accompanying instruction. And so let's just list them all there. Admonish the idol patiently, encourage the faint-hearted patiently, help the weak patiently, don't repay evil for evil, seek to, do good, seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And let's work through them one by one. Admonishing the idol. Now as we've been working through this letter this summer, we've learned that one of Paul's concerns for his church, in, in this church in Thessalonica, was that they would have a proper understanding regarding the coming of the Lord. It is possible that the idleness described here was in response to the view that since the coming of the Lord was imminent, there was no need to work. That's a possible reason for this instruction. However, the underlying word for idle in this text can also be used to communicate out of line. Think of a line of soldiers standing in formation with one or more soldiers standing out of line. Admonishing the idol, therefore, may be a call for us to be our brother's keeper, to be alert to a brother or a sister that may be wandering off of the narrow road that leads to life, whose walk appears to be out of step with their gospel talk. And as Christians, our goal is to make it home, to make it safely home. And so as the church, admonishing the idol, if we take that notion of being out of line, is one of the ways that we fulfill our collective responsibility to one another, to help one another make it home. There are a number of ways that you and I might struggle with this instruction. We might struggle in receiving admonition. We might also struggle with giving admonition. How might we struggle with receiving admonition? Hebrews 12, verse 14 warns us that there is a holiness without which no man will see the Lord. Therefore, if we desire to see the Lord, if we desire to make it home, we should desire, expect, and yes, even embrace any admonishment by a brother or a sister when we are out of line. The warnings of Scripture are also the means by which we admonish one another. That same verse, Hebrews 12, 14, that we quoted from is such a warning from Scripture that the, the Lord used to admonish me at a time when I was living as though personal holiness was optional in the Christian life. Matthew 7, 21 to 23 is another such passage that was instrumental in admonishing me at the time. That text says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So that's how we might struggle with receiving admonition. How might we struggle with giving admonition? It is a false humility that says, well, nobody's perfect, and the Bible says to remove the log in my eye before pointing out the speck in my brother's eye, and uses that as a reason for not warning or urgently advising a brother or sister when you see something that seems amiss. Now, how you go about it is very important. And the word that Paul emphasizes in each of these three instructions is patience, which we will say more about in just a few minutes. And so we have there, admonish the idle. Next we have, encourage the faint-hearted. This is the second category of people that Paul singles out for care in the church. The faint-hearted or the timid. Now on the one hand, this instruction may have in view those among the body of Christ that may have been particularly prone to discouragement. Perhaps you know someone like that. But more broadly, this instruction can be applied to each of us situationally. Have you ever been discouraged? Of course you have. Discouragement is part of life in this fallen world and there are innumerable possible sources of discouragement. And that means each of us here this morning, we have all either known the joy of receiving encouragement from a brother or sister during such times, or we've known the disappointment of not receiving encouragement during such times. Now, do we have a responsibility to encourage ourselves in the Lord? Absolutely. You may recall during our series in 1 Samuel a couple of years ago, chapter 30, we found David in a greatly discouraging situation. He finds the city burned with fire by the Amalekites, and his two wives have been captured. In verse 4 of that text, we're told that he and the people who were with him raised their voices and they wept until they had no strength to weep. I don't know if you've ever been there. Wept until they had no strength to weep. Does that sound discouraging? On top of that, in verse 6 of that text, we're told that the rest of the people whose wives and sons and daughters had also been captured turned against David and in their bitterness, they wanted to stone him. Right, so he's grieving, and then his people who are grieving turn against him and want to stone him. And then comes the fairly well-known ending to that verse, but David strengthened or encouraged himself in the Lord, his God. So yes, we must encourage ourselves in the Lord, but having said that, there are times when encouragement from fellow believers is sorely needed. Take as a literal analogy, the responsibility for eating food, intake of food for nutrition. While it is true that each adult is responsible for feeding oneself, there are seasons of sickness when one can be so weak as to need the help of somebody else to literally get food into their body. How do we encourage one another in the Lord? We run to the promises of God in scripture. Promises about who he is. Promises about what he has done. And what that means for us as his children. We gather regularly as believers for fellowship around God's word, even as we're doing this morning. Whether it's the proclamation on the Lord's day, or other times of smaller gatherings, or even one-on-one -on -one meetings. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but what? Encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the, the day drawing near. The third category of people here is the weak. And Paul says, help the weak. This seems almost too obvious to expound on. 
If and when there is a weak member of the body, the stronger ones are to rally around the weak one. We know it from the way our physical body works. What is a limp other than the stronger leg seeking to compensate for the weaker leg? Speaking of weaker body parts in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul tells the church that if one member suffers, all suffer together. Classic example is the, the pinky finger, right? Small finger, hit it with a hammer, the whole body is miserable. Has anyone ever pointed out a particular strength or gift that you have? Have you ever wondered why God gave you a particular strength? Well, this verse gives at least one reason, that you would use that strength to help the weak. Let me take it a step further. Some forms of strength are born out of heavy use, like a muscle that becomes big and strong through repeated heavy strain. And oftentimes, such strain comes through trials and suffering. And so, again, the question, have you ever wondered why God has allowed you to go through a particular trial or suffering? Could it be that there is a resilience and strength that will be formed in you as a result in order that you would then turn and strengthen the brethren, the weak who may, have, who may be facing a similar trial later on that's similar or almost exactly the same to what you have been through. When Jesus foretells Peter's denial in Luke 22, he says that he has prayed for Peter that his faith will not fail throughout his denial of him. And he tells Peter that when he emerges on the other side, after the shame, after the bitter weeping, he is to strengthen his brothers. The Lord used perhaps the lowest point in Peter's life to be the very source of strengthening that we see in the bold Peter in Acts 2, the same Peter who gave us the books of First and Second Peter. In 2 Corinthians 1.4, Paul speaks of the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And then you'll notice in the outline, each of those is to be done patiently, and we get that from our next verse, or our next phrase in verse 14, be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. Now, patience is a trait that each and every one of us desires to see extended toward us, but that we easily find ourselves struggling to extend to our brothers and sisters. In calling attention to the need for patience, Paul is communicating to the Thessalonian church that human transformation does not occur overnight. The idol may require repeated admonition, the faint-hearted may require repeated encouragement, and the weak may require repeated strengthening. Often, even the most well-meaning and patient Christians will find their patience severely tested when the one that they're trying to care for in these ways sins against them. The idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak are not fully innocent people and will often wrong the very brothers and sisters that are seeking to care for them. In the last 15 verses of Matthew 18, we find what is referred to as the parable of the unforgiving servant. And we see Jesus making a connection between patience and forgiveness. Notice that while the parable is absolutely about forgiveness, the request by both of the servants in that text is for what? It's for patience. I actually want to read it. Matthew 18 In verses 26 and 29, I won't read the whole parable, but Matthew 18, it's a familiar parable. Verse 26, it says, So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Right? And we know what happens. And then we come to verse 29. 
right? The first servant finds his fellow servant in verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, what? Have patience with me and I will pay you. Remember, we began by saying that patience is a trait that each and every one of us, just like these two servants in this parable, each and every one of us desires to see extended toward us but that we easily find ourselves struggling to extend to our brothers and sisters, just as we see in the first servant here. Ultimately, what plagued the unforgiving servant was a failure to appreciate not just the patience, but the forgiveness that had been extended to him. As we seek to care for one another here at Gateway, we will do well to remember that we ourselves were idle or out of line before the grace of God came to us. And we continue at times to be out of line and in need of coming back in line. Once we understood the helplessness of our condition, we would have been faint-hearted and weak until the hope of the gospel of God's grace appeared to us. Has God been patient with us? Yes. Does he continue to be patient with us? Yes. Let us therefore not be as the unforgiving servant who pleaded for patience, received more than patience, but yet did not respond in kind to his brother's plea for patience. By God's grace, let us be patient with them all, as Paul instructs the church here. Our next instruction here is do not Repay evil for evil, but do good. So speaking of being sinned against, this verse offers us the two possible responses when evil is done to us, and it gives us instruction on which choice to make. In our sin, we are inclined to seek justice for ourselves through revenge, an eye for an eye. In Romans 12, 19, Paul writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Listen to these words by John Piper regarding this text, Romans 12, 19. He says, this promise answers one of the most powerful impulses behind anger. An impulse that is not entirely wrong. In many cases, real wrongs have been done to us. Therefore, it is not entirely wrong to feel that justice should be done. What's wrong is to feel that we must make it happen and that we may feel bitter until it does. This would be a deadly mistake. Paul's argument is that we can be sure that all wrongs will be dealt with by God and that we can leave the matter in his hands because vengeance belongs to the Lord. To motivate us to lay down our vengeful desires, he gives us a promise. I will repay, says the Lord. The promise that frees us from an unforgiving, bitter, vengeful spirit is the promise that God will settle our accounts. He will do it more justly and mercifully and more thoroughly than we ever could. He punishes all sin. Nobody gets away with anything. He punishes it either in Christ, in the cross, for those who repent and trust him, or in hell, for those who don't. Therefore, we can back off and leave room for God to do his perfect work. End of quote. This might ring familiar as Paul has already mentioned this in chapter 4 of our letter, 1 Thessalonians 4, which we just were in a few weeks ago while he was writing on the matter of sexual purity in verses 3 to 6. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 6 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And then here it is in verse 6 that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things 
as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. And so in these concluding thoughts, he repeats it for emphasis. Instead of avenging ourselves, we are to do good to everyone, Christians and non-Christians alike. In writing similarly to the Galatians, Paul says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's Galatians 6.10. So that's the first part of our sermon this morning. We now move to the next section here on Christian perspective and behavior. Christian perspective and behavior. And we have a set of three do's and three don'ts, and then we'll be done. Do the following. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. What a set of straightforward, yet seemingly impossible instructions. Note the words and phrases, always, without ceasing, in all circumstances. At face value, they appear to be utterly unattainable, and they are. How then are we to make sense of them and begin to obey them? To help us here, may I suggest that with these succinct instructions issued in absolute language, Paul is describing the Christian perspective or worldview. Rejoice always. Christian joy is an inward joy. Proverbs 17:22 says, "A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones." Joy is not from the outside, but from the inside. It is the revitalizing of the soul. The psalmist often speaks of his soul rejoicing in the salvation of the Lord or rejoicing in the steadfast love of the Lord. In concluding his letter to the Philippians in chapter 4, Paul writes an expanded version of this two-word version, rejoice always, when he writes, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. So not only is this Christian joy an inward characteristic, but that little phrase again, in the Lord, reveals that it is rooted in the person and work of Christ. Now, a word on what Christian joy is not. Joy is not the absence of pain and difficulty. James 1, verses 2 and 3, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Speaking of trials and afflictions in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul coins that well-known phrase, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. By meditating and grappling with the tension that's contained in this thought, we come to understand that always rejoicing and sorrowful can coexist only in the Christian life. How then do we battle for this joy? We remind ourselves of who Christ is and what he has done for us. We remind ourselves that a joy that is rooted in the eternal Godhead is a joy that is not limited to the things of earth. We battle for this joy by reading, studying, memorizing, and meditating on the precepts of the Lord, which the psalmist, of which the psalmist says, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The next one is pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. For the Christian, prayer comes easily in times of distress. We can all identify with the psalmist in Psalm 18 verse 6 when he says, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. But friends, if distress is our main impetus to pray, we will not pray without ceasing unless we are in unceasing distress. We are most prayerful when we are most acutely aware of our dependence upon the Lord. I love it that we sang this morning, I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. 
I need thee. Oh, I need thee every hour. I need thee. One of the verses says, I need thee every hour in joy or pain. All the time. All the time. We therefore would do well to cultivate this awareness of our constant dependence upon the Lord for each successive breath that we take, which will translate to more constant prayer. However, talking to God is not limited to petitioning God. The preceding instruction to rejoice always and the instruction to give thanks in all circumstances that we'll see immediately after this both feed our capacity for prayer. The Christian who is always rejoicing will pray in adoration of the one in whom his or her soul rejoices. When a man loves a woman and rejoices in her, he adores her and it comes out in his communication with her. Likewise, the Christian who gives thanks in all circumstances, as we're about to see, will inevitably express his or her thanksgiving to God in prayer. And so may the Lord help us to grow in having our prayers reflect these elements of adoration, of thanksgiving, and yes, petition that glorifies God as the great giver of every good gift to whom we owe our very existence and the one in whom all our hope rests, both in this life and the life to come. Like the psalmist in Psalm 55, may our testimony be evening and at morning and at noon will I pray and he hears my voice. May we heed the very words of our Savior when he says in Luke 18, men ought always to pray and not to lose heart. Have you ever lost heart when it comes to prayer? Let me leave you with this simple thought that I love from a pastor by the name of Ray Ortland. He says, before we pray, we may never feel like it. After we pray, we're always glad we did. Give thanks in all circumstances. We've just mentioned this. Earlier this summer, I had the joy of teaching our four and five-year-olds the story of the ten lepers who Jesus healed, only one of whom thought to return to Jesus and express his thanks. And while there is a rebuke, here for the various ways in which we take for granted the daily mercies and goodness of our Lord without expressing our thanks. The emphasis in our text this morning is on thanksgiving that is not dependent upon favorable circumstances. It's easy to see why the ten lepers ought to have given thanks. But what about when our leprosy is not healed? do we still give earnest thanks to God with a straight face? The Christian perspective and attitude is to be able to answer with a resounding yes. Because we know that everything that comes into our lives is God-filtered. We remind ourselves of Job whose dreadful circumstances came about through God allowing Satan to touch his possessions, his family, and his health and yet Job says, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. And this kind of indestructible hope is ground for thanksgiving. We remind ourselves of Paul's words to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 4. He says in verses 8 and 9, and I've tried to put this in a, in a table form to help us see it. He couples each difficult circumstance with a reason to be thankful. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. And he concludes that section with one final pair of difficult circumstance and cause for thanksgiving. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And this provides the basis for this attitude, this Christian attitude and perspective. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Lastly, Paul's instructions on Christian perspective and behavior include three things that we are not to do. Three do-nots. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, 
do not partake in any evil. Quench not the spirit. Now in this letter to the Thessalonians, the last mention of the Holy Spirit comes a few verses earlier in chapter 4, where Paul instructs these Thessalonian believers on sexual conduct that accords with a life that is pleasing to God. We actually had read briefly from that section. He calls them to sexual purity and holiness, and as he does so, he gives us a clue as to what he might mean here when he says, quench not the spirit. Let me read verses 7 and 8 of First Thessalonians 4. It says, I think we'd gotten as far as verse 6. So verses 7 and 8, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The key word here is disregard. God has given us his spirit as part of the new birth. If you are born again, the Holy Spirit who is God lives within you. And when he brings to your mind a truth from the word of God, whether it's a promise to believe or an imperative to obey, we have the option to trust and obey the spirit or we have the option to disregard or suppress or quench the spirit. And so which option characterizes you and I this morning? The Christian is characterized by not quenching the Holy Spirit, but instead by trusting and obeying him. Despise not prophecies. Prophecy is a purported word from the Lord, and that can either be true or false. If we think back to the story in Acts 16 and 17, how this Thessalonian church came into being, Paul came into town. He was accompanied by Silas on his missionary journey with a word from God about the person and work of Christ. And the Thessalonian believers evidently received the word and did not despise it. And yet they are now being instructed not to despise prophecies. Now we cannot be sure exactly what was happening in the church to prompt Paul to issue this instruction. We do know that in some of Paul's letters, such as 2 Corinthians and Galatians, he warns various churches ab about false teachers who he calls false brothers or false apostles. And that tends to be the error that less mature believers are prone to, right? To be tossed by any wind of doctrine. But we know from all the commendations that Paul has given this church that they are a mature church. And that comes with the danger of the opposite error. Being so content with what they already know, so as to despise or to look down upon a purported word from God. And so he tells them not to despise prophecies, but to test everything, holding fast only to that which is good. How might we apply that to ourselves this morning? Is your theology, is your knowledge of God so complete, so watertight, that you're not open to a new fresh word from the Lord? Please do not misunderstand what I am saying. There's a very big difference between us now and the Thessalonian church then. We have the complete canon of scripture. Here at Gateway, we affirm the absolute authority of scripture for all of our faith and practice. All that we need as far as divine revelation is found in this book. Related to the previous point, one of the ways we quench the spirit is by despising the word of God by diminishing the message of divine revelation found in this book, by showing contempt for content from God's word. Another difference is that we have copies, multiple copies of God's word available to us at any time today. This is a relatively new phenomenon in human history. It dates back only 500 some years to the printing press and more recently, mobile apps that have cop put copies in, of the Bible into our pockets. And this means that our primary means of Bible intake today is through reading it for ourselves and maybe listening to a sermon or two each week. Not too long ago, Bible intake required hearing it for, from someone who stood and, and proclaimed it, who read it, perhaps in an original language other than English, and then conveyed its meaning and translation. So there's a sense in which we can rightfully feel a diminished need to be open to someone else bringing a word from the Lord, given that we can read our own copy of God's word for ourselves. But at the same time, let us not swing to the other extreme end, 
to the point of not being open to learning and growing along with other Christians. If you've been here at Gateway for any length of time, you'll have heard our teaching pastor share some of the ways that his theology, his knowledge of God, and understanding of the Bible has evolved and grown over time. And many of us have the same testimony. Twice in Paul's famous chapter of, um, on love, in 1 Corinthians 13, where he does speak of prophecies, Paul uses the phrase, we know in part. Right? And he says, one day we will stand face to face with our Lord and then shall we know fully. Right? So let us, as we look to that day, let us seek to grow in our understanding of Scripture. Let us test everything. Yes, through our own personal study, but also as others among us, brothers and sisters, come to us. They are in the Word and they come to us with something that the Holy Spirit is teaching them from the Word. Let us not despise the Word of the Lord. And finally, abstain from every form of evil. Abstain from every form of evil. That is a, as absolute and exhaustive as it gets. It begins with acknowledging that there are moral absolutes and therefore there is objective good and objective evil on two ends of a spectrum. And we've just been instructed in the previous verse to hold fast to what is good. And now Paul says to the Thessalonian believers and to us this morning that we are to abstain or to restrain ourselves from doing or enjoying any and every form of evil. Parents and educators among us have likely heard the classic question, how far is too far? Usually attributed to young people regarding any number of gray area issues. And often, what's, what's the response? That's the wrong question. The idea isn't to determine where some line is and get as close to it without crossing it. Rather, the Christian is to be known for holding fast to what is good, which we've just seen, and at the same time, abstaining from every form of evil. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7 uses the language not of good and evil, but of darkness and light as a similar picture. 1 John 1, 5 to 7, describing the Christian way. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. All right, what then are our concluding thoughts? The concluding thoughts of the concluding thoughts are up there. There's a lot of them. There's 17 imperatives in our text this morning. You can count them from verses 12 to 22. I'll rattle them off. We won't spend time. Respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. But I want us to summarize all of that in these three ways. On peace, are we pursuing peace in the way that we relate with our elders here at Gateway Bible Church? Are we pursuing peace in the ways that we relate with our elders here at Gateway Bible Church? Secondly, are we patiently caring for one another? Are we caring for one another, first of all, and then are we doing so with patience? The same patience that has been extended to us. And just like the unforgiving servant, he received more than patience. Forgiveness. The two are related. And lastly, 
Does our attitude, our outlook, our perspective on life reveal to a watching world that we are followers of Christ? Father, we, we need Thee every hour. Your Word is full of instruction for us. And yet, we dare not attempt to begin following instructions until we know that we are following Jesus as our Savior. The one who came and kept your law, your instruction perfectly, and then went to a cross and died for rebels such as us, who do not keep your instruction as we ought to. And so if it be that there is anyone under the sound of my voice that does not know the fatherhood of God through which we can address one another as brothers and sisters, Lord, would you draw such a one to yourself in salvation even today? And then for the one who is in Christ, as we think about the importance that through Paul's writing, you emphasize peace and harmony and unity in the body of Christ, may we consider how it is that we are pursuing peace with one another. First, with our elders who you've placed over us in the Lord and with each other as we seek to care for one another with much patience. And then as we remind ourselves of these seemingly impossible yet straightforward instructions on the Christian perspective to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all circumstances, may we remind ourselves from whence our joy comes. May we remind ourselves that you are a God who seeks to hear from us in prayer, who receives glory every time we offer up our thanksgiving to you for who you are and for what you've done for us. Please work these things out in us. We pray for our elders. We pray for Pastor Rod as he's on the road. We pray for our elder Albert, our elder Ed our elder J.D. We thank you for them, the gift that they are to the church. We pray that you would continue to use them as they work among us. Use us in each other's lives for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.